join me for a reading from the New Testament, 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, as we're uh, meeting back in person, a lot of things are the same at Grace, but one thing that's changed, you probably noticed, is that Glenn is no longer in the pulpit, but this is kind of the pulpit, this kind of domain where he's moving around freely. So I want to thank Glenn for freeing me from the kind of awkward height of that pulpit and for Ryan for introducing this wonderful music stand. So just muses for me this evening. Thank you. Um, If y'all would bow with me and pray. Father, we come before you thankful for this Lord's Day, thankful for this time where you have called us as your people to gather together to worship you, um, to receive your good gifts uh, to us. Lord, I pray that you speak through me. I pray that it makes sense. We love you, and we trust you in your name. Amen. Well, it, it is really wonderful to be with you all this evening. Um, this summer, I've had the privilege along with Mike and Andrew to do some pulpit supplying at a church out in Vienna, uh, but there's something unique and distinct about preaching at one's own church, and so it truly is a joy to be with you this Lord's Day to deliver God's Word and to receive it as well. So tonight, we are wrapping up our series, One Anothering. Throughout this time, our uh, sermons have focused on a series of topics, such as confessing to one another, recovering one another, loving one another. And then last week, Ryan introduced and showed us the importance of the topic of hospitality to one another, of the importance of one anothering through this spiritual service of hospitality. This evening, we're going to conclude our series by looking at the theme of serving one another, of one anothering through serving. Um, As we turn our attention here, I want to focus on three points regarding to serving one another. And uh, I'll say that I grew up in a small Bible church in Texas, so you'll forgive me the alliterative P's here for the three points, but the three points are this. Uh, The areas of serving are the posture of serving, the purpose of serving, and the pedigree of servants. That is, the posture of serving, the purpose of serving, and the pedigree of servants. I can't think of this spiritual gift of service without remembering uh, a story with my mom when I was a young kid. I was probably about seven years old, standing in the kitchen, talking with her. We were having a a rigorous theological conversation about spiritual gifts. I'm sure it was riveting. And, you know, as I look back, I'm pretty sure there were probably dishes in the sink that need to be washed. I'm sure that Uh, There was laundry to be folded and put away. I'm sure that there were chores that I hadn't done that had been asked multiple times for me to do. And so in the middle of this highly advanced theological discussion, she kind of stops me graciously and says, you know, Will, so many people are interested in wondering whether or not they have the gifts of teaching or wisdom or 
prophecy or tongues, but so few people are interested in wondering if they have the gift of service. And uh, I just consider that like a quintessential mother of four comment, considering the needs that were on her and the desires of her kids to maybe pick up on this gift and what God desires of them. And as with most funny stories, there's an element of truth to this. We can almost accidentally, it seems, create a hierarchy of gifts, often relegating service to the bottom. We tend to place gifts like teaching and wisdom at higher up on the chain. As we grow in our faith, it is important to remember the centrality of service in our devotion. And as we'll see from our passage, the only acceptable mode of enacting a spiritual gift is as that of a servant. Another way to say this is that we are to have a servant's heart in all that we do. And this takes us to our first point, the posture of serving. In verse 10, the Apostle Peter says, Each one has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. In Christ, each one of us has received at least one gift. This is listed out in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, among other places. And in that, Paul includes things like wisdom, teaching, helping, knowledge, and administrating. Each one of us here has been given a spiritual gift as Christ rose victorious over sin and death and even now hands out the spoils of war to his people he has won for himself. These gifts are the fruits of his labor and we are beneficiaries of his grace. Whatever the spiritual gift is that we have been given, there is one way to use it. That is in serving one another as stewards of God's grace. This is the posture we take. We serve as stewards. In our current context, um, especially in Washington, D.C., this posture of service is uncomfortable and possibly frightening to us. We have careers, ambitions, desires, goals, and we're afraid that if we follow this command to use our gifts and service, maybe we'll be overlooked for a promotion. Maybe we won't receive the credit we are due. Maybe we'll be taken advantage of. We're not thought as highly of as we would wish. In this way, there is a desire to gain control, to attain prestige, or even to maintain a certain image of ourselves that we want to project. So let me say something in response to this that I hope is a comfort to all of us. Namely, that the posture of serving is consonant, is resonant with the deepest depths of reality. If, God, if the God we serve is truly Lord of all, then that leaves us with two postures, servants or rebels. If God is Lord of all and we seek to honor him, then we can be nothing but servants. As Lord of all, there is no possibility of us gaining control, attaining prestige, or maintaining an image unless he wills it to be so. In this way, we have nothing to fear. We can confidently serve God because we know who is in charge and how he is in charge. But there's also a context beyond D.C. Of course, it includes D.C. It's bigger than D.C., though. It's, um, that makes this idea of stewarding through service so difficult. And it's what a, a philosopher Charles Taylor has called the ethic of authenticity. And it largely dominates our Western world today in the 21st century. So what do I mean by ethic of authenticity? Well, I do not mean that there's a problem with authenticity per se. In fact, according to Scripture, even this passage, true authenticity means being a servant. 
The authenticity I am speaking of, the authenticity that prevents us from serving one another, is the sort that tells you, that tells us, tells all of us, that we can only be happy or fulfilled, that we can only truly find out who we are and content with ourselves if we look deeply within, decide on our own who we are, and choose how we want to live, and then live only according to those self-decided dictates. It is a kind of authenticity that was cut off with, from any contact with the demands of the transcendent, or cut off even with any demands of community or those around us. And it is a problem, truly, that affects deeply. This is not a political thing. This, this affects deeply everyone on every side of the aisle um, anywhere in our, our Western world. If this is the authenticity that someone chooses to embody, the possibilities of stewardship and service are precluded by the fact that stewardship and service imply something greater than oneself. I think this kind of helps us understand why anxiety is so greatly on the rise. The National Institute of Health reported that from 2008 to 2018, anxiety rates nearly doubled among people from 18 to 25. There's a great dissonance that results if we are made for service but deny its possibility. Uh, Maybe a line from Beauty and the Beast will help us here. It's one of my favorite pieces of cinematic art. Comes from the great diner uh, dining scene where Lumiere and Cogsworth and the others are singing, and Cogsworth opines, "Life is so unnerving for a servant who's not serving. He is not whole without a soul to wait upon." I, I did think about um, channeling some Andrew Russell as he isn't here, but I thought that y'all would be blessed and benefited by missing out on that gift to you. Uh, so, before moving on to the second point. I want to look at the first part of verse 11 that that I think connects to this same point of posturing. And Peter says this. He says that whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In this verse, Peter breaks down God's gifts into two broad categories. That is, speaking gifts and serving gifts. As good Presbyterians, this is a good chance for us to exercise a little bit of ecclesiology or a little bit of ecclesiastical understanding. We see that in the gifts of uh, elder and deacon, reflecting the two general offices of the church. But even more than that, the spiritual gifts of teaching and service manifest themselves in unique ways. What the role of the pastor is on Sunday is different from the role of one setting out Sunday snacks in Sunday school. But again, their posture is exactly the same. It is identical. It is stewarding God's gifts as a servant. For the pastor, this includes rightfully interpreting and applying the word of God. For the one serving in Sunday school, it means tending to the needs of the little children that, whose concerns are so deeply cared for in our Father's heart. They both assume a servant. And instead of being unnerved like the neurotic Cogsworth, we are enlivened when we serve one another's needs. And so that takes us to the second point the posture, uh, the, the purpose of serving. We see this in part two of verse 11. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The purpose of serving is clearly presented to us to glorify God. That is the end. That is the telos. That is the chief goal of service, to bring God glory. 
But I would like to look at is how this is so. How does service glorify God? And I think this question takes us back to the role of stewardship. The role of a steward is different from that of an owner or even a king. A steward does not get to decide on their own how to use a gift or what policies to put in place. A steward is someone who has received explicit instructions as to how they are supposed to carry out their duties by the one whose place they are holding. And for the purposes of our text here, good stewardship honors the one who gave the gift. But how do we know that we are stewarding the gifts that God has given us to his glory? How do we know that we're stewarding them well? We can know that we are stewarding God's gifts well by looking at Scripture and reading what God commands of us there. That is, he tells us to love one another. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ tells us that we are supposed to be salt and light, to love our enemies, to give the, to the needy, to not lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, to not lay up treasures here on earth, but instead in heaven. It's quite different, quite different. If anyone's taking notes, I would ask that you redact that uh, for the sake of ordination. Um, And, and fittingly, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, or perhaps we could look at Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. When our actions line up with what God has told us pleases him, we can be sure that we are stewarding well. Stewardship according to the principles of Scripture reminds our hearts who we are serving. We are constantly returning to the one who has given us these things to begin with. And it also shows the watching world that we live according to a different ethic, that we don't decide for ourselves what is best for one another, but we act in what is best for one another by what the Father has told us. Servants who steward well can rest secure knowing that their master is pleased with him. Stewardship that is accord with Scripture glorifies God. Um, it seems that the past few weeks we've been having a slew of literary references in this church, and so I kind of want to continue with that by going to Lord of the Rings for a second, if that's okay. And as a good Presbyterian, I feel like that is also required of me, whether Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings, one of the two has to be referenced at some point in a sermon. But if you remember in the third book, uh, The Return of the King, Denethor is the steward of Gondor. And the movies don't capture this very well, actually. They, they kind of are a little misleading. Denethor is more of a villain than he is in the books. In the books, what happens to Denethor is that he recognizes the threat coming from Mordor. He recognizes that Gondor is going to be under assault. He ceases to trust other people around him, ceases to look for counsel from other people, and instead, you know, this is when it gets really nerdy, he starts looking into the Palantir. He starts looking into one of the seven stones to get advice and, and ideas on how he ought to respond to this threat that's coming. And as a result, he ends up going mad and he ends up almost, I mean, he ruins Osgiliath for crying out loud, just a terrible loss. Um, and, and of course, it's not good a field here, but it's a serious issue, uh, military history. But I think there's something that Tolkien is trying to teach us in, in this example, and it's that you know, as we steward, we can recognize the weight of our responsibility. We can recognize the weight and the call on our lives to love one another, to serve one another well. And there can be an easy temptation to kind of 
look to ourselves, to, to turn within ourselves, to re- remain our own, to look to other sources beyond the ones that God has given us to steward. And when we do that, we again continue to cut ourselves off from those around us. We continue to cut us off, ourselves off from the source of life um, and end up doing great harm to ourselves and others. One more thing before I, I turn to our last point. Thank you for humoring me. Uh, and that is what Peter says at the end of verse 11. He says that God is glorified through Jesus Christ. How is that so? Isn't he glorified through us as we are the ones who are called to serve one another? Well, yes, the answer to that question is yes, but it is yes in a highly qualified sense, and I'll show you how. There's some 200 times in the New Testament the reference to our union with Christ is made. This doctrine comes through when Scripture speaks of us being in with or of Christ. This teaching tells us that we are brought from death to life, and our new life that results through this process of being regenerated is hidden in Christ. We are clothed in his righteousness, and all that we do as Christians is because of this new life we share in union with him. Uh, PCA pastor Rankin Wilborn in his book, Union with Christ, says, quote, When we are in Christ, every part of Christ's life, not only his death, has significance for us. We share in his life and obedience, his death and his resurrection, even his ascension. We participate in another's victory. All that is his becomes ours. Our union with Christ is rooted and grounded in Christ's union with us in the incarnation. End quote. Brothers and sisters, our union with Christ grounds our service to one another. It makes it alive. It gives it purpose and meaning. We must remember this, especially living in Washington. As a church, we believe that we are called to love this city. We believe that we are called to serve its needs, to be salt and light, to be a city on a hill. And that that is right. That is good. That That is where God has placed us, to do those things. But in so doing, we can often get worn down, tired, or frustrated. The city can be relentless, any city. And I'm not at all saying some kind of flee the big, bad, urban context, you know, run away from the city and run for the hills. No, nothing like that at all. But what I am saying is that if we want to carry out the great commission that God has for us, we need to serve one another. In the midst of struggle and difficulty, trial and persecution, worry and doubt, serving one another... It's like a cool drink of water on a hot D.C. day. And in doing that, when we consider others better than ourselves, when we provide someone with a meal, when we reach out to pray for one another, we are living out our union with Christ. And this, we are. I mean, in a real sense, that is what we are doing. And this is a mystery that is too deep, that is too great, that is too profound, that even at the fullest, fullest range and capacity of our imaginations, we could never tap the depths of what this means. And so this takes us to our final point, the pedigree of serving, the pedigree of servants. In line with my mom's quip, I'm guessing that most of us do not think of the word pedigree when we think of servants. But this, in fact, takes us to one of the great paradoxes in Christianity, that he who was in the form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
during his earthly ministry, Jesus said that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Everywhere Jesus went, he followed the will of his Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. He lived the life of a servant to everyone around him. It almost seems that everywhere he was going, he looked and asked the question, how can I help? How can I help? What can I do here? And even on the night of his betrayal, in the intimate context of the upper room at the final long discourse that he will have with his disciples before his ultimate humiliation on the cross, our Lord and Savior disrobed. He tied a towel around his waist and he proceeded to wash the feet of each and every one of his disciples, including Judas, the disciple who would end up betraying him. After completing this act and putting back on his robe and returning to his seat, he said to them, A new command I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, are you to love one another. They understood what he meant. They had an idea even of what this looked like. They knew that they weren't being told to wash up before dinner, nor wash each other before dinner for that matter. They knew that they were being commanded to love one another through service. And not just any service, but service that might be considered beneath people of a certain rank or standard. How could they do that? How could they subject themselves to such loneliness? Even more, how could they possibly expect to fulfill a standard that was only ever met by the God-man Jesus? The answer to that first question is in the paradox. It is that by serving as the lowest servants, we are imitating the king of the universe. That by serving one another, we are embodying the commandment to love one of the greatest powers in all the universe through the Father. Something that is so great, love that is so great, we are told that God himself is love. Our great God gave them a new commandment that would be the greatest, our greatest source of joy and fulfillment. The answer to the second question lies in our union with Christ that we just mentioned. As Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We inherit the pedigree of the great servant king, through dying to ourselves and living in Christ. So I'd like to con- conclude with a, a, a final point here, um, somewhat a point of application, I think. Which is kind of funny, this whole sermon is an application in a way. Maybe, I thought so, it's serving. You know, it's clear, right? But we have to think about how we can do this. How can we look out to each other's needs? What, what do we need to be doing? But while working on this sermon, uh, I thought about Nobel laureate's uh, book by Kazuo Ishiguro called The Remains of the Day. I don't know if you guys have read it, it's a little bit of a spoiler, not much. It will not give away the ending. Um, but the, the book, The Remains of the Day, is, is an amazing piece of literature. And, and the novel is narrated by a man named Stevens, who is the former head butler of a very prestigious manor in England. The novel takes place in the mid-1950s and is largely a reflection on Stevens' life as this head butler. And as the narrative progresses progresses, Stephen begins to realize slash reveal to the reader that Lord Darlington, who was the owner of the manor, may not have been as good of a lord as he was originally thought. That maybe there was part of his past that was unworthy to serve. And you know, in this realization, as the reader goes through this process of of learning more about Lord Darlington, there's something very tragic that takes place. Because all of Stephen's life was built around this idea of who he was serving. Everything that he did, how he dressed, how he spoke, who he interacted with, all of this was based on his standard as this servant to this particular man. And I think the relevance is this. We all have to serve something. We are made to serve, 
And as such, there is only one who is worthy of our service. There's only one who will not disappoint that we will never regret through serving him. It is impossible to waste or regret a life that is dedicated to serving God in one another through our work, our family, our friends, our community, and worship. You know, brothers and sisters, as we, as we continue to move out of this past year and a half, we say that all the time, um, we are deeply in need of serving one another, of reaching out to one another, of, of learning what one another needs are, and to, to draw ourselves closer um, to each other and to Christ ultimately. And so my hope and prayer is that we will love and serve one another to the glory of our great God. Let's pray. Father, we um, come before you that out of your great love for us, you and your Son and the power of your Spirit sent him to earth to be a servant according to your will, to live the perfect life and to die for our sins and to rise again. Um, Father, I thank you for that example um, and the power of the Spirit within us that allows us to participate in that. God, I pray that you give us a, a dedication to you this week, that we fall more in love with you, see more of your glory in your name. Amen.